morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time learning together. Thanks to the leaders who will go and help them. Everybody else, if you would turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll be in verse 27 today. Philippians 1, uh, 27. Hope you've had a, a good week and enjoying a good weekend. The staff, two times a year, so about every six months, goes away for a couple of days together. We spent some time up in Payson. And God has put together a great team, so thank you for your investment in them. We've got a lot to do today, so we'll just jump right to it together in a really significant passage in Philippians uh, chapter 1. So I'll start reading in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair near you, and feel free to take that home with you if you don't have a scriptures. Philippians 1 verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that you that it should be granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Several of William Shakespeare's plays include a character called King Henry IV. King Henry, though, started out as just Prince Henry. Early on, Prince Henry was a typical teenager of privilege. He spent his time drinking and causing trouble with his friends, and life revolved simply around him. But later in his life, as his father's death drew near, real change began to happen in this young man's life. Prince Henry realized his own unworthiness of the crown of England, and as that crown was given to him as his father was passing away, he committed to living a life worthy of the crown. As Henry V moved from Prince Henry to King Henry, he received that crown and he said this. It'll be on the screens. This will probably be the only time you'll ever hear me quote Shakespeare, so those of you that like this stuff, revel in the moment. He said, the tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. For those of us that speak plain English, I've wasted my life up until this moment. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea, where it shall mingle with the state of floods, and flow henceforth in formal majesty. No prince nor peer shall have just cause to say, God shorten Harry's happy life one day. If you know the story, you'll know that from this point on, Henry V became one of the noblest kings England ever had. He followed through on his commitment to live a life worthy of the crown of England. Brothers and sisters, those of you in the room who are believers, when we asked Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins, we also made a commitment to live a life worthy of a king. You see, when we became Christians, we got not only a Savior to rescue us from hell, 
but we got a Lord to lead our lives. You see, to experience the love and forgiveness of God articulated in the Bible is also to pledge a life in obedience to that same Bible. In our passage today, Paul exhorts us to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's not a typical way of talking, is it? Please understand, though, Paul is not calling us to earn God's love and acceptance. That's not what he means. But to live godly, united, holy, courageous lives in response to the acceptance of God we already have. In a sense, what he's saying is respond to the crown of life that you've been freely given. To put that another way, our passage today beckons us to live as good citizens. Now, that might seem like strange language, and part of that has to do with the way verse 27 is translated. Would you look at it again with me? It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you may know that the Bible is mostly a translation of Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, uh, the New Testament. And most English translations of the Bible were put together by a whole team of scholars, and you can trust these translations. It's a miracle to hold God's Word, to have it in our language, which we can understand, and it's something you can count on and depend on. But there are a few cases where many translators believe that the force of Paul's intent isn't clear, and this is one of those few cases. You see that phrase, let your manner of life be, all of those words come from one single Greek word. And this word technically means to be a citizen. It's the only place in the whole New Testament that word is used. Technically means to be a citizen. Give me just a moment to give you the background, and I think it'll make a lot more sense. The Philippians, to whom this letter was originally written, were the proud bearers of the title Roman citizens. To be a citizen of the Roman Empire was to possess the rights and privileges of the wealthiest and most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Safety, security, and confidence were yours if you were a Roman citizen. Now look at this map we'll throw up on the screen. This will help orient us to what was going on. You'll see where Rome is. That's still there today, the boot and then way over on the other side of the Roman Empire was the town of Philippi, which is just ruins today, long distance apart. The communities around Philippi all spoke Greek, and anything that's been recovered from those societies up until this point in history has all been in Greek. So tombstones, any formal, legal, written documents that have been discovered, any books in libraries, these are all in Greek. Now, that's not surprising, of course. It is Greece, after all. But then you hit Philippi, this one not very large community in the middle of a society in which everything else was in Greek. Everything that's been discovered in Philippi up until today has been in Latin. So, the gravestones, the governmental documents, the books discovered in libraries, everything is all in Latin. Why? 
Well, it's because Philippi saw itself as the little Rome of the East. Its whole goal as a society was to be the other Rome. It was to be the noble place, the little colony, if you will, of Rome. It was to establish themselves as the strong Roman citizens of the eastern half of the empire. Very unusual for this time. Philippi became one of the key places retired Roman generals would go to live out the rest of their lives. <coughs> you thought we were done with this, didn't you? Sorry. Abby, could you give me that water, sweetheart? Where? Right there, the red cup. Thanks. Every preacher carries a red cup. Thank you. <laughs> so Paul takes this very unique cultural setting to say something very specific. He says, Philippians, you may be citizens of Rome, and you prize that as a city, but your real citizenship is in heaven. The place you're actually from, where you really belong, is not of this world. So Church of Philippi, live like a little colony of heaven. Isn't that a neat picture? How? How is it that Christians together are to live as good citizens of the kingdom of God? How does the church become a little colony of heaven? Well, that's what this passage is all about. In societies that think Christians are crazy, when there's pressure from within the church to conform to the culture, to take holiness less seriously, and when there's pressure from the world to be soft on what we believe, how is it that Christians can live in ways fitting of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what this paragraph is about. And Paul's answer is, honestly, is fairly simple. He says, live as heaven citizens with a united stand and a collective courage. So when everything boils down to two simple principles, how does the church live as citizens of heaven? Well, you do so with a united stand and a collective courage. I think there's perhaps not a more important, urgent message for a church to hear today than that. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning simply talking about those two ideas. Let's start with the first. Live as heaven citizens with a united stand. When you hear the word Christian, what image comes to mind? What if you take just a moment and answer that question to somebody sitting near you? When you hear the word Christian, what image comes to mind? Go for it. Take a moment. All right, I hear a little bit of snickering. What image comes to mind? Let me give you a few I think we're probably discussed. Is, is the image you have of a Christian a grumpy, judgmental, stuffy 
old lady. No. Good. What about a dispassionate man who sits in a library and reads books all day? Is that what you think of when you think of a Christian? What about a monk that withdraws from the world and only has relationships in a tiny little group of people where it seems like everybody's sipping the same Kool-Aid? Is that what you think of when you think of a Christian? Friends, when Paul thought of Christians, he pictured compassionate, loving, steadfast soldiers. That's one of the images he had in mind. I doubt that one was something we said. Look again at verse 27. I want to show you that. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, be good citizens of the kingdom of God, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm. That's a military term. He's saying, be good soldiers of Christ. You're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The image is one of a weeping warrior if you will, people who stand together on God's Word. Friends, many of us are living as though the Christian life is a vacation on a cruise ship, when in reality it's more like being in the trenches of a long combat. Church on Mill, we're in a battle, and every single one of us is a potential casualty of this war. There's never a point in which you graduate beyond being at risk of turning your life away from God. Our fight is not against Democrats. It's not against social progress. The reality of this battle is not about checking your brains at the door and just doing what people tell you to do, regardless of whether or not you've actually checked to see if it's in the Bible. This battle is not intramural debates over secondary theological issues. It's not even a battle against ISIS or Syria or radical Islamic terrorism. You see, it's not a physical battle at all. It's a spiritual battle. The book of Ephesians makes this very clear. Towards the end, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the, cosmic, uh, uh, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christians, Satan is out to ruin us in order to discredit the gospel and harm God's reputation. Will we stand strong together? Will we focus on pushing back the darkness, as Kent prayed? Will we share the gospel, especially with people put right here in our backyard at ASU? Or will we be so distracted with worldly things that fellow brothers and sisters wander away, casualties of this battle, without us even noticing? Let's follow the example of those who have gone before us, and again, Put a stake in the ground right here at 
13th and Mill and be a community of light in a dark place. Now, it's absolutely crucial in this conversation to understand the Bible is not calling us to a posture of war with the everyday person we meet on the street that's not a believer. That's not what this passage is about. Those of you who are students on campus, maybe we could say it this way. Taking a stand is not synonymous with becoming like Brother Jed. Do you know who he is? This is the guy who travels around campuses around the country. He shows up with signs, screaming, yelling, that all, all faggots and sluts should go to hell. That's not the image that Paul is conjuring up. Instead, it's that we would be weeping warriors. We'd be people who are out sharing our faith publicly, boldly, and yet doing so with compassionate, loving, gentle, tender hearts. People brokenhearted by the casualties of the spiritual war that's all around us. It's men in the church who work hard together to disciple younger men, as Titus 2 tells us to. It's men who say to each other, because of what Christ did for you on the cross, I can't let you waste your life on video games and porn. You can't bum off people late into your 20s and not do anything. You need to work hard, be respectful of women, get off the couch for the glory of God. Take up leadership and responsibility. Show up to things on time. Do your part to serve. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. It's to call upon each other to see Christ as our only king, to live for him, to pursue holiness, to enjoy God's kindness to us, to not be soft on the Bible, to study it more than anything else, to live for God without reservation. Men, Christians, are you doing that? It's women in the church discipling younger women, saying to each other, because of what Christ did at the cross, the beauty of a Christ-like character is infinitely more important than the fleeting external beauty of your body. It's taking a stand by saying, no, we won't talk about each other that way. Go to your sister in Christ and work out that disagreement. Reach a point of forgiveness and reconciliation. Choose to overlook that offense for the sake of the gospel. Graciously, let's be women who cling to the Bible as God's good, trustworthy word. Sisters, are you doing that? That's being a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's being a soldier of Christ. It's also broader things like we're doing right now. It's gathering together every Sunday morning to sing the gospel to each other, to pray to the Father who has adopted us into his family, to care about whoever walks through these doors, regardless of who they are or what they've done. It's willingly and gladly and joyfully sitting under the preached word of God. Do you recognize that listening to me is an act of war? Have you ever thought of that? Here's what I mean. If we open our Bibles and, and look at them and we say, yes, that's right, that is what God says, 
To do that is to put an act of open defiance out in a culture that says there is no absolute truth. It's simply every person for themselves. But when Christians sit together and we open the Bible and we say, yes, and then we seek by God's grace and His strength and His power to live our lives not as though we're the authority, but to conform ourselves to the Scriptures, that's to be soldiers. Friends, perhaps the most direct application of this important passage is that all of us would see our church membership as incredibly meaningful. You see, when we're saved, internally we confess faith in Christ as many in the room here today have. But then we take a stand in baptism. We go into that water and it's as though we're saying these words, I'm with Christ and his people. Publicly, I pledge allegiance not to the American flag. I pledge allegiance to the king of all countries. And here with these brothers and sisters, I want to band together and follow him. Friends, being a member at Church on Mill is saying, by God's grace, you all are my new family. And I invite you into my life. My growth in Christ is under the leadership of the elders and the mutual care of the church. So walk with me, love me, confront me, pray for me. Share the gospel with me. Let me serve you and you serve me. Do you see that that in a very public way is the main way God would have us be witnesses to the world? So let's encourage each other to live mainly not for this temporary world, but for the kingdom of God. Church on Mill, let's be a little embassy of heaven right here in Tempe. Let's be people who don't run when we hurt each other. But we stick it out. We forgive because Jesus forgave. We return hurt with kindness. Let's be people who don't go in tremendous financial debt merely for personal pleasure but be people who sacrifice our wants in order to give generously to needs. Let's refuse to be non-committal. Let's deliberately sacrifice all kinds of things because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Remember, the church is where the gospel is put on display for the world to see. The cause of the gospel is bound up in the persistent faithfulness of the church. And so by God's grace, let's take a united stand. So how do we be good citizens? Paul says first, we take a united stand. Margaret, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How long has it been since you were here? Four months. Margaret was in a car accident and smashed a leg that had already been smashed. But you're back. Praise God. Welcome, sister. Yes. Now, the second thing Paul said to do is to live as citizens with a collective courage. A collective courage. Read with me at verse 28 where he talks about this. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then kind of an odd sentence. This is a clear sign of to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. What he means is this. When people who do, who do not follow Jesus see the collective lives of Christians, and they observe the quality of that life, a life infinitely better, not because they're better, but because they're following a king who's changing them. And they hear the gospel that we share and yet still reject that life. That is a way in which they're seeing their own coming destruction. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Friend, the church is to be a people that are courageous. Did any of you say that when you described what you picture a Christian being? A person of courage. By God's grace, we're no longer to be people who live in fear of circumstances or people. I'm incredibly encouraged about the future of this church and the church in America at large. There was a time in America when Christian values were prized as normal. Those of you in the room who are over 50, maybe even over 40, likely remember that kind of time. If you lived in the Midwest or in the South and you're over 40 or 50, you definitely remember what that's like. I can remember as a child living in communities when being a deacon in your church was good for business. Isn't that a weird thought? It used to be that way. On the surface, a society being pro-Christian values seems like a good thing, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem like a good thing? The American experiment shows us that it's actually not. You see, living in a society where Christian values are prized as normal turned out to confuse the gospel itself. Because we looked at the ethics and thought, if we just live like them, then that's good enough. You see, the message of the church, though, is not live by our values and behaviors and you'll be with good, good with God. Instead, the message of the church is we're all sinners, but Christ died for us. So turn to him and find life. Now, does the gospel have behavioral implications that ought to impact society? Yes, of course. Because those who come to Christ experience new life and then want to build that life out to make a better world. But behaving in line with the gospel is something you do as a Christian. It's not something you expect people without Christ to be able to do. Friends, it's becoming weird to be Christians. Are you aware of that? It's becoming even weirder to gather as a church. And I think that's a really good thing. Because what it's going to do is it's going to put the gospel back at the center, away from a generic American moralism that can't actually save. 
international friends here today, understand we have absolutely no interest in persuading you to become Americans. We're here to share Jesus Christ with you. Jesus Christ transcends every country. He transcends every nation, language, and skin color. A great book um, out right now called Onward, there's a few copies of it back in the bookstall, written by Russell Moore. I want to read you a few quotes from it that I found helpful. The first one is this. If our principal means of differentiation in politics is politics or culture, then we have every reason to see those around us as our enemies and to see ourselves as somehow morally superior. But if what differentiates us is blood poured out for our sins, then we see ourselves for what we are, hell-deserving sinners in the hands of a merciful God. You see, to say we are in a battle is not to say we're to go out and be combative with everyone who disagrees with us. Moore goes on to say, our end goal is not a Christian America, either of the made-up past or the hoped-for future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ, made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are in Christ the heirs of this kingdom. Friends, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven already. And where is that kingdom today? It's in churches. It's in churches that are little colonies of heaven showing what life under a good king is like. And so we live our lives openly, publicly, warts, flaws, and all, in order that Christ could clearly be seen as the one who can change us. And friends, we don't simply talk about this kingdom as though talking is all Christians do. We embody this kingdom in the way we treat each other, in what we do when one of us falls into significant unrepentant sin and how we seek each other when we quit showing up. See, the church is a little embassy of heaven, a, an outpost of the kingdom of God, a colony away from the homeland, but embodying it here and now where the doors are always open to anyone who would come. Friends, together we have the privilege of forming an alternative family where we grow up to be men who don't have sex with our girlfriends and then just leave when there's a pregnancy. Where feuds don't fracture relationships, but they end up making them better. Where self-interest doesn't reign supreme, but serving each other in love does. Where senior adults are not set aside, but treasured. And babies are not seen as hassles, but as gifts. That's a different kind of family than what most of us have been exposed to. Where we gently insist that God creates people, male or female, in his image in beautiful yet interchangeable, not interchangeable ways. That's what it means to be people of a collective courage, enduring all things with joy because of our commitment to Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, the reality is that kind of life together 
in 2016 will be a life that includes suffering. And I'm not talking about the the normal happenstances of life, the car crashes, the cancer, the job loss simply because of a layoff, or the failed class because you didn't do the work. I'm talking more about the things that come directly as a result of the commitments we have to each other and to Christ. D.A. Carson put it this way, if our salvation has been secured by the suffering of another on our behalf, our discipleship is to be demonstrated in our own suffering on his behalf. In what sense could it be said of us that we follow Jesus Christ if there's no cross-bearing in our own life? Now, this would, of course, involve what might be called direct persecution, But it would also involve the choices that people make who are putting aside self-interest for the cause of Christ. It would involve making morally hard decisions through the lens of the gospel. One odd thing you might be surprised to learn is that in Philippi, it's very likely that the Christians would have been referred to as atheists. Sounds rather strange today. When we use the word atheist, we mean someone who doesn't believe any God exists. But in the first century, both the Greeks and the Romans believed in many gods, perhaps hundreds of gods. And the emperor of Rome claimed to be a god himself. And so along came this weird little band of people who said, we believe there's only one God. We believe there's only one king. We don't pray to the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the, uh, the weather, the God of fertility, the God of the crops. We only pray to one God. We will be great citizens of Rome, but we qu- cannot swear our highest allegiance to Caesar Nero. Only God is God. That was a costly stand to take in that day. And it was so strange that to say, I don't believe in all those gods, was so confusing to the average person, they simply called Christians atheists. Paul told those dear Christians to stand firm with a collective courage as a little embassy in Philippi. And he's still telling us that today. But what's different for us is nobody's telling us to worship Obama or Hillary or Trump. That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Our culture doesn't tell us there's a God for everything. That's not the battle we're facing. But we're still susceptible to fear, are we not? Who in this room who follows Christ has not felt the desire to share Christ with somebody, but we haven't done it because we're afraid. We're well acquainted with fear. We are very much people who face real opponents of the gospel we hold dear. 
For us, the front lines of this battle against Christianity is now not political. It's sexual. And the church has not made that the front battle lines. The world has. But it is a battle we cannot shy away from if we remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're willing to say in everyday conversation to a friend over coffee, the Bible says sexuality and gender are beautifully linked, that will come with a cost. If you say to a friend, you really shouldn't move in with your boyfriend, wait until you're committed to marriage before you commit to live together you will be considered incredibly odd. If you go as far as saying, I love you, and because I love you, I must tell you, the lesbian relationship you're pursuing no doubt feels right to you. And I share tremendous compassion with you for the temptation. But it isn't right, and it will only harm you in the end. Friend, you will be branded a bigot, a hate monger. But lives lived under the gospel means lives lived where the Bible, not prevailing cultural winds, are a source of truth. So we need, as a church, a collective courage if we will remain compassionate, gentle, loving, and yet firm on truth. In summary, how do we respond to what God has done for us as individuals and collectively as a church? Well, we would live as citizens with a united stand and a collective courage. As we close, I would speak briefly to just two groups of people here today. First, those of us who are Christians. 2 Timothy 2 has been helpful to me this week as I've thought about my own life. It says in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Friends, when, those of you who are Americans, when soldiers leave the United States and they're deployed and they go out to war, they're on all the time, right? Sure, every now and then they get leave and they have a few hours, perhaps even a day or two, to go enjoy some of the normal things in life. But for the most part, they're on duty all the time. Why? Well, it's because the battle demands that level of commitment. Brothers and sisters, we are in a battle. We are soldiers all the time. Are you finding yourself committed to being on duty 24 hours a day, 
Are you finding yourself entangled in the pursuits of the average person in everyday life? I hope, Christian, that you'll search your heart today before we leave. And where repentance is needed, you will do so. And where confession of sin is needed, you'll visit with a brother or sister before you leave. And then in God's strength, that you'd live different this week. But to another group in the room, those not yet followers of Christ, we would ask you, would you forgive us when we have, as Christians, made something other than the gospel, the central message we have conveyed to you that you must believe if you would become one of us? The church especially the Church of America, has made that mistake greatly. We're not inviting you to join a certain political ideology or to dress a certain way or to have been somebody who hasn't or has done some particular thing in the past. We're not even inviting you to take on the name Baptist. But we are saying... We believe there is a king who's a good king, who's not a tyrant. And that all of us have rejected his rule in favor of our own. And the message of the church is the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life in order that he could die a sacrificial death on the cross. And God accepted that death in your place. And he rose again in victory. And now he reigns as the king who will one day return for all of his people. And if you would turn from your sin and turn to this king, then you will have life, forgiveness, a fresh start. You will be called a Christ, a Christian. Are you ready today to receive that king? If so, we would invite you to do so. Let's stand and pray together. I want to take just a couple of moments in quiet, individual prayer. So Christians, we would invite you to ask, am I living entangled in civilian pursuits or am I living for the king? Non-Christians, we would invite you to consider the claims of Christ. Are they real? And if so, would you turn to Christ? And perhaps some of us in the room would need to go to another brother or sister and talk about one of those things. I would ask uh, some of the staff and gospel community leaders, would you just gather around the room, some of you in the back and some here at the front? If you could go now as we take a moment just in quiet prayer. If you would love to pray with somebody, would you go to one of these brothers or sisters standing in the back? Maybe you have questions about the claims of Christ or you simply need prayer for something in your own life. But let's take two, three, four minutes and just pray together. And go to one of these brothers or sisters if there's a need. I wonder, Steve, if you're still here, if you'd come play on the piano for us. And let's just spend a few minutes in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the privilege of being part of your kingdom. That whoever we are, whatever our nationalities or our education level or the things we've struggled with in the past, that when we trust you to save us, then you welcome us into your family. We thank you that you have seen fit in your providence to put a little embassy of heaven here at the corner of 13th and Mill. We pray, Father, when people think of Church on Mill, they would think of a people who are kind, who are honest, who are sacrificial, and who are committed to Christ. Father, as a church, we would confess that at times we have not been faithful to you, and so we ask you for your forgiveness. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that any hard work you have just done in them, that they would be faithful before they leave this room to talk with another brother or sister about it and ask for prayer. We pray for those in the room who are not yet convinced of the claims of Christ, that they would continue to feel welcome, that they would ponder what we've discussed, take a Bible and start reading, perhaps in Mark this week, and get in regular conversations to discover, is all of this true or not? God, we pray this week that we would find ourselves not entangled in civilian pursuits, but in literally everything we do, we do it with our ambition to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated for just a moment.